In a digital era where you can quickly Google search pretty much any recipe, the idea of flipping through a cookbook for inspiration in the kitchen may feel antiquated. But for Bonnie Slotnick and many others, cookbooks are far from obsolete and offer much more than just recipes. Slotnick owns a vintage cookbook shop in the East Village of New York City. She moved to 28 East 2nd Street after being priced out of her space in the West Village. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. When you walk into Bonnie's shop, it's like stepping back in time to an internet-free world. Her store is filled to the brim with vintage cookbooks from around the globe. I recently sat down with Bonnie inside her shop to talk about her history and her love of cookbooks. Hi, I'm Bonnie Slotnick, and I'm the owner of Bonnie Slotnick Cookbooks in the East Village. So, Bonnie, how long have you been operating a cookbook shop here in New York City? Well... As of this month of October, uh, it's 22 years. What inspired you to open a shop specifically devoted to cookbooks? Well, when I was a little girl, as so many wonderful stories begin, I just fell in love with reading a cookbook that my mother had. My mother had maybe two cookbooks, but I, I focused on one and I just read it and it became like my favorite children's book and then my favorite young adult novel. And somehow that was in the back of my mind when I moved to New York to go to college in 1972 and moved to the village. And bookstores were everywhere in those days. And I started collecting cookbooks. And that was really the seed of this. So your first shop was located in Greenwich Village. Yes, my first shop. And it wasn't exactly a a straight shot from arriving to go to Parsons to opening my shop. But my first shop was in a a basement office on Washington Place, and the person who rented it to me, I thought, understood that I would be running a store, even though I had a day job at the same time. But the day before Thanksgiving in November, there was an article about my new shop in the New York Times, and someone showed it to my landlord, who was up in Maine, and he called me and said, you didn't tell me you were you were going to be running a retail store. I can't have retail there. You're out. You got to get out. So I managed to talk him down from there. I mean, the store was only open on weekends and kind of after work and kind of by appointment. But that that placement at that time in the New York Times that's a day when people who have never cooked before need to suddenly roast a turkey. So everybody reads the the food section. That really got me started. And I stayed in that space for not quite two years, and then I saw a little storefront, what passes for a storefront in the village. And I made the big leap and moved there, and six months later I was laid off from my day job. So in a miracle of no planning and happenstance, I suddenly had a a bookstore on 10th Street in New York. Fifteen years later... The landlord decided he didn't want me there anymore and just refused to speak to me about renewing the lease. And Margot and Garth Johnston, who own this house that we're sitting in, called me up and said, we have a place for you. We love books. We love bookstores. Our mother was a, an editor. Uh, please come see our space. And here I am. It's been just about four years now. They just happened to have read about you, right, in the closing yes. of your shop. Garth wrote for Gothamist, and they follow social media blogs. They're up on everything. And Jeremiah Moss, 
who does the uh, Vanishing New York blog, had written about me because I wrote him a letter. I wrote him a letter and said, I never thought I'd be one of these people saying, oh my God, I lost my lease, what am I going to do? But here it is. And he, he published my entire letter. And then that got picked up by other blogs. And um, Margot and Garth saw it and called me up. And it was, it was really incredible. It was literally, I could not believe what was happening. And then I came here and looked at the space. And it was, it's so much bigger. <laughs> I can't believe that this little store is three times the size of my previous store. So then fair to say there are many more books here than you had in Greenwich Village? There are now, but the way I run my business, I don't know how many books I have. I know that it took me about three weeks to pack and about three weeks to unpack. <laughs> there were I moved in there with something like 4,000 books, and I think I moved out with something like 5,000. And at the moment, I might have 6,000 because I've just been, a lot of books have been coming in. A lot of people are decluttering. Where do you get your cookbooks from? 99% of them come from private people who are decluttering, they're moving, they're downsizing, they don't eat this way anymore. Sometimes people call me when an elderly relative has died or professional people who handle estates, and they they say, I don't want these books to end up in the garbage, and I feel like I'm being stabbed in the heart because I don't think any books should end up in the garbage. Luckily in New York, if you put books in the garbage, somebody usually comes along and gets them and will eventually offer to sell them to me if they're cookbooks. But I never buy entire collections. Some people will have a 1,000 books or 500 books, but I'll choose the books that are best for the shop, and then I'll help the person find either another dealer to offer them to or more likely a good place to donate them. So what does that mean, books that are best for the shops? What cookbooks are best for the shop? Well, I I have there are kind of two divisions. There are what you might call bestsellers, books that I know have sold well over the years and will sell again, and I'll have three or four copies of them in stock. And they are books that fill needs that I know the customer's have. I know I'm always being asked for bread baking books and I never have enough. And because I can't I can't it's a funny way to stock a store. I can't really acquire everything I want or need. I can't call the publisher and say send me 10 copies of a book from 1964. So if I can't find it, I have to try to find books of equal quality. And the other side of it is that I try to find interesting old books, which I love. I My customers don't seem as enthusiastic about them as I am. Most people are pretty practical when it comes to cookbooks. They want a book they can use. And I just brought in 10 boxes of books, a lot of which are from the 1930s and 40s. And I love to read them, and I love their design and the paper and the color of the dust jacket. So one side is I try to get the books my customers, I know my customers want, and the other one is I get the books that interest me that I would like to share with my customers. That said, what story do these books tell in terms of how we have evolved in terms of how we eat? <laughs> or how we have devolved. <laughs> um, yeah, well, the the problem with the books from the 30s and 40s, the American books, is that the food is very plain. By today's standards, 
the vegetables and the pasta and everything else are overcooked, under-seasoned, uh, no, no exotic, quote-unquote, influences, no, no Chinese recipes in these books. And the recipes are written in a very simple way because people knew how to cook. You bought a cookbook after having grown up with your mother, your grandmother, your father, watching them cook and maybe taking over and cooking your own meals and then cooking meals when you're in college. And then you bought a cookbook and you knew what what um, poaching and sautéing and things like that mean. Now, books have to be so overly explicit to tell you how hot the pan has to be and what something should look like. And most of all, there must be a photograph of the finished product and possibly of the steps leading up to it to show you what half-inch dice means when you're cutting up the carrots. And I think they're, they're sort of, there's no mystery about them anymore. They're, they're too explicit. I really, I don't even look at new cookbooks and I'm not looking forward, should I still be in this business in 20 years, to selling the books that came out in 2018. I, there are very few that really appeal to me. Whereas the small books from the mid-century that have not a photograph, maybe some beautiful little drawings for atmosphere, and have a lot more of the personality of the author, I, I feel that those are timeless. And if you just, if you know how to cook, you can make use of those recipes. What are among the oldest books in this shop? I have a couple of books from the 1850s at the moment. I have very rarely had 18th century books, but my business isn't really in antiquarian books. It's really in just out of print and used. The antiquarian book market has soared and you know, used to be able to find a 19th century book in one of the local 4th Avenue bookstores. I'm only talking 40 years ago, um, you know, for $5 because nobody wanted it. And now with the internet, everybody knows what everything is worth, so to speak, or what it will sell for. And the antiquarian books that I have are in pretty poor condition. That's what I can afford. Or I sort of, I sort of rescue them sometimes when I'm buying books. I see a book that nobody else would buy because the cover is falling off. But I know that one of my customers, maybe a young culinary student, would love to just have something in their hands from the 1860s, the 1870s, and they won't mind the condition that it's in. I was going to ask the question, who is your clientele? Well, on any given day, <laughs> on any given weekend, I probably have about 60% tourists, some of whom come walk in, you know, I'm from New Zealand, and this was the first place I wanted to go when I came to New York, which is thrilling to me for somebody who doesn't advertise. And 40% local people who maybe never walked down this street before. Second Street, East Second Street, has a surprising amount of foot traffic. It's partly because there's a very upscale store at the other end of the block, John Darien, which sells home decor things. And it's like a magnet for tourists and people who love beautiful things. And then if they walk east and they come to my shop, it probably seems as if I'm giving everything away because the other store is very expensive. And my store is very not expensive. Um, so 
I have people who live in the neighborhood who just never walked on this street. They see my sign, which I'm so glad I had a young man, an artist, paint, hand paint the sign that's outside. A computer was not involved in that. And they'll just look around and say, oh, this is amazing. This is wonderful. And then I have people who are on a mission. I have a lot of young restaurant cooks and chefs and culinary students. And I think they don't get much of an experience of books in culinary school. They're, everything is hands-on. They're probably handed. I think in some culinary schools now they give them a, a tablet and all their material is electronically sent to them and sent back. And they just love to look at the old books. Um, I have people who are just everyday cooks who make dinner for their family every night. And the people who really touch my heart are the people who love just to be surrounded by cookbooks and read them and find out about the authors. And these are the people who would never get rid of their cookbook collection. As, as one customer of mine said, they're my friends. I walk into the room. I come home. I walk into the library, my library. She obviously has a bigger place than most New Yorkers. Um, and, she, and I'm among my friends, and I would never let them go. And that's how I feel. I'm so happy every time I walk in here. I'm, I'm so happy to go to work every day. And even though I'm barely making the rent, I'm so lucky to have work that makes me happy. So what is special about flipping through an old cookbook? For me, it's, uh, it's a vacation. It's a trip. It's time travel. From, from the minute you look at a book, you look at the, the cover, the colors that are used in the design, the texture of the paper, whether it's letterpress, when you can run your hand over the page and feel the imprint of the type in the page, or something later, and you start to read, and if it's a good author and a good book, you will be transported to the time and place that that book was written. It may be someplace that I have been. There's some wonderful uh, old cookbooks that came out of Vermont. Not only do they remind me of what it's like to be in Vermont 30 or 40 years ago, but they also remind me of book buying trips I took to Vermont and where I bought certain books. So as with anything that you handle every day, if it has some history to it, if your grandfather gave you his watch, every time you look at the watch, you think of the person. And when you open an old cookbook and start reading it, you are reminded of the author. You're reminded of the first time you looked at it, where you bought it, what you cooked from it. And being somebody who works at least seven days a week, <laughs> I like having a little vacation available at my fingertips. And the books I have at home are very much of that kind of book. They often have a narrative. You know, I did, that's, that's where I go. I haven't traveled a lot. <laughs> I just go where my books take me. I would imagine that some of these books are second, third, maybe even fourth hand. Do you find any interesting notes in there, scribbling? I have found the most amazing things in books, amazing to me. Before people say, oh, my God, a $100 bill, they, the largest bill I've ever found in a book was a five, um, which I kept all for myself. But you very often find not only written in the margins comments about what recipe, what recipe the family liked, what recipe was successful, what recipe was a disaster, 
Sometimes people will literally cross out the whole recipe and write, no, <laughs> never again. It took way too long. No flavor. But then there are also repositories of of culinary things and of other things. So I have found old books where people have pressed flowers. People leave in bills. Even if, if a book was bought at Macy's in the 1940s and the person has left the handwritten bill in, that's wonderful. That, you know, takes you back to a time when New York City department stores had book departments. Is that even possible? Yes. Um, but also, I often think that especially in 19th century books, maybe the first half of the 20th century, a lot of women had, as my mother did, maybe only one book, and that was the cookbook, and that was the important book. So they would tuck everything into that book, little invitations and notes and newspaper clippings. That's sometimes very useful because you can tell where the book was used. You know, if it's a Rochester paper, sometimes a 19th century book doesn't have a date. You'll find a clipping about Civil War casualties or something, and you can date the book. Um, I've found there are two things that I cherish the most. One is a, a business card, kind of an oversized by modern standards business card from a, a, a cattle dealer who was on East 48th Street. <laughs> I can read it to you. And the front of the card has the name of the person and an engraving of a cow. And on the back it says, $10 to one cow. Another two meaning paid for or paid on account for. And that's written in pencil. I, I'm not sure it has a date, but I tried to look back and see when that area was developed. It's now... I don't know, you name it, luxury condo. And the other thing that I found was a letter, found it in a copy of Joy of Cooking, a letter from a parent writing to a grown child and giving the child certain recipes. So this is how I make this, this is how I make this. And it's written, obviously, by somebody whose first language is Yiddish. I'm very familiar with that kind of language. The spelling is funny. I think it's written in pencil. And after giving the recipe for the pachai and the chont and a few other things, it says, I really should read it. It's, it's so funny. Um, so I have made my decision. I will get married in April. It's either Mrs. Katz or Mrs. Abelson. And in, 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 in March will be the unveiling. So the whole story comes out that this is not the mother, but the father of the, the person who's being written to. His wife has died a year before because the unveiling is in March, say, and then he's already he's set to go in April to marry these two other widows who have obviously been courting him or vice versa. And I just hear in that voice, I hear all my aunts and uncles, and, and to some extent my parents. And just the way that, that that letter was folded up and kept, you know, that's, I'm sorry that the person, that the, the family it belongs to doesn't have it anymore. I'm always kind of surprised when people want to sell family cookbooks that are very personal to them, but some, you know, people have other things that are meaningful to them. 
I was looking through a, a very nice collection of books recently, and a woman on the Upper East Side, obviously very well-to-do, and there was a Julia Child book. And I just had a feeling when I reached out, because she had said something about living in Paris, and the book was inscribed to her in-laws by Julia and Paul Child. And I I pointed it out to her, and she said, oh, yes, the, they were friends in Paris, i.e. they were friends of her husband's family. So I, I gave that back to her. I don't need to, to snatch family heirlooms away. <laughs> Speaking of Julia Child, you supplied books for the movie, Julia and Julie, or Julie and, Julie Julia. and Julia. Yeah. Yeah, that was really fun. The, that started when one of the people from the prop department or the set decorating department brought me, she was a customer of mine already, she brought me a photograph that had been taken in one of Julia Child's apartments in Paris in the early 50s, probably. And she said, we want to duplicate this exactly, but we can't tell what books those are. So I was able to tell them just from the gestalt that this is this and this is that. And then I got as many of those books for them as I could. They had to buy some from Europe. They're very uncommon books here. And then we proceeded to to reconstruct Julia's kitchen in Cambridge, which is in the Smithsonian now. But they wanted to have it so perfectly authentic, and they wanted a first edition of Mastering the Art of French Cooking so that at the end of the movie when Julia gets the book in the mail and in a... a uh, What's it called? A lack of... Oh. <laughs> anyway, when Julia Child opens the envelope and gets the first copy in the mail, it's a jiffy bag, and those weren't invented until 1970, and a lot of people wrote in about that to IMDb. Um, that had to be a first edition, and I said, can't you kind of fake it? It's very hard to get a first edition. And she said Meryl Streep would not stand for that. She would definitely want the original book. So I provided a lot of books, and then after the movie was done, it was completely locked up or whatever they call it. They had a prop sale, and the woman I had been working with advised me that the easiest way to deal with the books would be to buy them all back as a lot. So I did that. So I got my books back, and I got books they had bought you know, at the Strand just to fill the shelves in, in Julie Powell's apartment. And I had that that first edition that Meryl Streep had pulled out of the bag. And there were, there were also some very pedestrian books that were just used as filler, but they had a little piece of blue tape in the back, and they or they would say set deck, or they would have the initials of the character that they belonged to. And it was, it was so much fun to go through that stuff. And I also bought a lot of the props, just the small things like little spice tins and some bowls and... Aside from maybe three things that I kept for myself, I've sold all of that. What book in the store would you say epitomizes New York City, really speaks to the history of this great town of ours? Well, I have a lot of books about New York restaurants, and 99% of those restaurants are gone. Um, 
I don't have a copy of it right now, but because I have always lived in the village as long as I've been in New York, there's a Greenwich Village cookbook that was published in 1969 by the publishing company that that puts out women's wear daily, if they still do. I don't even know. <laughs> um, and it was a, a little capsule summary of, I think, 75 restaurants. And this was when there was no East Village. This neighborhood was called the Lower East Side. There was no West Village because nobody wanted to live over there by the docks. There was just Greenwich Village, and there were little Italian restaurants and French restaurants. And I think uh, three of them are still open. And that, that book certainly epitomizes my experience of New York. The restaurants I went to, the restaurants I walked by and thought, oh, someday. The restaurants I walked by and thought, that place is so expensive, I will never be able to go there. Uh, let me just look over in the New York shelves. Oh, something like, well, the Four Seasons. I mean, that was a, a big chunk of New York history and time that is now gone. Um, and there were there were restaurants that were very famous in their time, like Rome al Salta, a, a Roman Italian restaurant. Nobody knows, nobody ever heard of it anymore, except people who were alive then. If you had an opportunity, Bonnie, to meet any one of these cookbook authors, which one would it be? No, no problem. <laughs> no, not a moment's hesitation. It's Della Lutz, and anybody who's ever talked to me about cookbooks knows that I always say that my favorite book is a book called The Country Kitchen. And I've been lucky enough in the last couple of months to find a few copies. It's hard to find. It was published in 1936. And it just epitomizes what a cookbook is to me. I'll show you a copy. It has a red gingham cloth overboards cover. It has the title is on a little pasted-on label. These are things that don't happen anymore in publishing. It's a small book. It's an octavo, you know, a book you can hold in your one hand. And I've never figured out whether it, it's considered a novel or whether it's a somewhat fictionalized memoir. I think the latter. Uh, Della Lutz grew up in Jackson, Michigan, outside Ann Arbor in the 1870s on a farm as an only child. And... Her little nuclear family was very focused on food from the way she remembers it, from the way she writes about it. She write, The book goes through the seasons, which is something I love in any kind of book. It you know, starts in the, in the winter, not January 1st, but so that you can pick up the book and read a chapter at any time of year. You can read your chapter. Um, she talks about the crops that came in and the the community festivals and the family events. And it has recipes woven right into the text. And then she wrote, very happily for me, four or five sequels, which progressively become less about food. But even I happen to have the, the first sequel, which is called Homegrown. And I noticed that the chapter titles, about half of them have to do with food. So... She became a magazine food editor, a women's magazine editor. And she wrote, I have a book, another book by her about table setting and service. About She wrote an etiquette book. She wrote a book of menus, very um, kind of middle class, um, aspirational 
homemaking. So if you look at Country Kitchen, you think, oh, this this little little house on the prairie kind of girl. And then you, you look at what she wrote later. She wrote a book called Bridge Food for Bridge Fans, which is really savagely funny. It really, I, I, I think she was reading S.J. Perlman, and she makes, makes these wisecracks about, you know, if you're, you'd want to make this refreshment for your bridge party with whipped cream unless the combined weight of your bridge table companions is over 800 pounds, in which case you skim milk. I mean, that wasn't happening in the 30s, and that book is from the 30s. Um, so she had, I feel like she had a double life. I mean, I'm sure she didn't feel that way. She just had time in 1936. I can't remember how old, well, she would have been toward the end of her life, um, to sit down and write memoirs. But meanwhile, she was she was a New York lady. It always reminds me of that Barbara Stanwyck movie, Christmas in Connecticut, where she is very much a sophisticated New Yorker, and she has to pretend to be farm wife. <laughs> That's one of my favorite movies. I guess the question now is, what question would you want to ask her? Oh, my God. So who were you really? Bonnie, thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot. This has been great. Bonnie Slotnick is the owner of Bonnie Slotnick Cookbooks in the East Village. More information at bonnieslotnickcookbooks.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Caroline Rotante, and thank you so much for listening. Thank you.